in the passage before us this morning, we have both a macro and micro view of world events. We see in the person of Solomon how individuals' choices affect not only the individual but also their families as well as an entire nation and, yes, even the world. But even more importantly, we see how God is intricately involved in the events of this world. God is not idly sitting by in heaven as a passive observer watching how the consequences of mankind's actions naturally unfold. God is not nervously awaiting to see and wondering how all the events of this world are going to turn out. God is aware, interested, active, and purposefully involved in the sovereign oversight of this world's events. It is important that we always keep in mind in the forefront of our thinking that God is sovereign over all things. And that sovereignty is expressed. Solomon, who was so wise, was foolish in trusting in his own wisdom rather than trusting in God's word and God's authority as the means of governing his life's choices. Solomon got to the place of no longer following the Lord. Solomon perceived that the source of his security was in his own ingenuity. And in that security, it was his downfall. As it's been a few weeks that we've been in First Kings due to my vacation and communion, let me just remind you at this point that Solomon thought that he was making his kingdom more secure by entering into these covenantal marital relationships with foreign wives. That in marrying these foreign wives, he was entering into a covenant with the kings of the other nations and supposedly making these strong treaties that would secure his peaceful reign. However, God had expressly forbade that Solomon, or any king for that matter, would enter into these marriages with foreign wives. And the reason being that those foreign wives would turn their heart, his heart away from following the Lord. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, he married these foreign wives and his heart was turned away from the Lord. And so what Solomon thought would be the security of his kingdom actually becomes the downfall of his kingdom. The key verses are verses 9 through 11. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So the theme of this morning's message is 
the importance of acknowledging and submitting to God's governance in our own lives and in the life of the world. Let me repeat that theme. The importance of submitting, uh, acknowledging and submitting to God's governance in our own lives and in the events of the world. There are some things that we need to keep in mind. First, we must keep in mind God's involvement in this world as it is revealed to us, the readers, through his word. God reveals through his word his involvement in the events of this world. God gives us, the reader, through his word, insight into God's reaction to Solomon's disobedience. If you look at verse 9, we are told the Lord was angry with Solomon. We don't have to speculate, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to conjecture as to God's response, how God felt about Solomon's disobedience. We're told quite plainly that it angered the Lord. Furthermore, the word of God makes it clear as to what it was that angered the Lord against Solomon. What was it that really upset God? Well, verse 9 tells us that as well. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Here's the reason, because his heart had turned away from the Lord. His heart had turned away from the Lord. He was no longer totally dependent upon the Lord, and he was no longer just worshiping the Lord. But in the verses that precede, we found out a few weeks ago that he is actually worshiping other gods as well. And that, of course, angered the Lord. Still further, the word of God makes clear Solomon's blameworthiness for failing to follow God. The fault lies in Solomon. Notice verses 9 and following. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Here's the fault. God appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So the first set of applications are these. First, news reporters do not report on world and national events by speaking of God's role in them. You're not going to look up a blog on the internet or turn on cable news and have an accounting of the world's events and then depicting God's role in those world's events. Thus, it is easy to overlook and to forget the reality of God's activity in this world. It's easy to think that it's just a matter of people's own decisions and people's own actions, and that somehow God is removed distant from or even just totally unrelated to the events and circumstances of this world is supposed to be intricately involved. That is why the biblical accounts are so informative and necessary. 
for it is in those accounts alone that we get these interpretations of God's involvement in the events and the affairs and in this particular situation with the kingdom of Israel. For in the narrative, we have these little pop-up windows, if you will, that give an account of God's activity in the events that are unfolding. We have this narration that keeps telling us of God's thoughts and actions, of what God is doing behind the scenes. The invisible hand of God's providence is made known to us. It's revealed to us through his word. But that's the only place that you're going to find it. That's what makes the word so necessary and so important. We find out that God is going to take away a large portion of the kingdom from Solomon's descendants. We find out that God is at work governing this world and the nation of Israel. And so we are to learn from that great truth, first of all, that God has the right to rule this universe. Secondly, that God is able to rule the universe. And thirdly, does, God does in fact rule the universe. God reveals to us the need and benefit of submitting to God's rule of that universe, that, that we acknowledge it and that we submit to it. And in submitting to it, that we actually welcome it, we desire it. It is a wonderful thing that a sovereign God, because of the attributes of that God, that he rules over this world. And we also discover the outcome, the consequences of both submitting to that rule and rejecting that rule. What the outcomes are. Secondly, we must keep in mind that God in his grace communicates to Solomon through his word what are God's thoughts and actions. The verse that we just read was an interpretation for our benefit for the readers. We were given background as to what is taking place. Now we have God's word to Solomon. We are not told the form in which Solomon received God's word. Rather, we're told the fact of Solomon receiving his word. It tells us in verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, so now we have what God said to Solomon, whether that be through a prophet, or whether that be through a dream, whether that be through direct revelation, we're not told, but God gave his word to Solomon. And in that word that God gives to Solomon, we see a number of things. First, God reveals Solomon's fault to Solomon. Verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. So he, he tells Solomon why what he is about to say is going to come to pass. Solomon, it's because you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. You have gone after other gods. That has been your practice. That has been your way of life. That's how you've been conducting yourself. So much so that in the early verses we find out he has 700 wives. 
He's done this repeatedly. Repeatedly. God also communicates what God is going to do as a consequence to Solomon's unfaithfulness. It tells us at the end of verse 11, and specifically it tells Solomon, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Now, God's response should come as no surprise to Solomon. For God had already repeatedly warned and told Solomon what would happen if he went after foreign gods. In verse 9, it tells us that God appeared to him twice. And there are a number of accounts earlier in 1 Kings where Solomon himself acknowledges what God had told him regarding the importance of faithfulness. The first comes in a prayer in 1 Kings 8.25. Solomon says, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not mock a man uh, to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons paid close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Then in 1 Kings chapter 9, starting at verse 4, And as for you, here's the warning that God gives, If you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So, Solomon had been duly warned, and yet Solomon had disobeyed. Next set of applications. How wonderful it is that God gives us his word. That God allows us to understand. That God speaks to us. That God reveals how his sovereign control over this universe works on what it is grounded or founded. God does not merely work arbitrarily. There is, it's not true that there's no rhyme or reason to God's control over this universe. So God informs us of a way of blessing and a way that it is beneficial for us in a way that is contradictory to blessing and harmful to us. For it tells us in verse 10 that he had commanded him concerning this thing that he had, should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. How foolish it was for Solomon and how foolish it is for us to ignore what God tells us. Herein is one of the great values of reading the Old Testament, to be reminded time and time and time again of the outcomes of listening to, understand, and appropriating God's word, opposed to the outcomes of having God's word, hearing God's word, but rejecting 
God's word and going in another direction. We find it time and time and time again so that we might learn that when we hear God's word, that we will submit to God's word as opposed to rejecting or going against it. God's involvement in the affairs of this world, as I said, are not arbitrary, but are in keeping with his word. So we find in verses 9 and 10 that the Lord was angry with Solomon because of the heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he not keep the Lord's command. So now we find out that God does not make idle threats. Verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes I have commanded you, here is the result. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. God will always do what he says he is going to do. We can bank on it, both positively and negatively, meaning that we can bank on God's promise that he will be faithful and he will honor his word and we will be blessed in our allegiance to Christ and we can bank on it that judgment also is real and that there are consequences to our action. What is important to keep in mind in this particular instance is that God reveals his plan so that it be clearly seen that God is at work and achieving his purposes. There's, there's no missing in this, this chapter that, that God is at work. But God also gives Solomon a look into God's future plans in order to bring Solomon to a place of repentance. He warns Solomon of what is about to take place so that Solomon can hear the rebuke of God, know that he had been at fault, and unlike David, who, when confronted by God, repented, Solomon doesn't. Solomon doesn't. It wasn't that David was perfect, it was that David repented, and Solomon doesn't. And we will see that more forcefully as we move through this text. Third, we must keep in mind that God is able to overcome mankind's resistance. The kingdom is going to be ripped away from Solomon. If you look at verse 11, it says, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. The word tear implies Solomon's resistance to what the Lord is going to do. The kingdom is not simply going to be handed over willfully by Solomon and his descendants. Solomon is not going to acquiesce to what God says will be the future. It is going to be torn away from him. He's going to try to hold on to it, but it's going to be ripped out of his hands. Solomon had been trying to secure his kingdom. God says, your kingdom is not secure. Well, 
Solomon responds to that warning by holding on tighter and thinking that he can resist God. However, this resistance will be futile. For God says, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So the application is how foolish it is of Solomon not to repent. There is nothing to be gained by Solomon's continued disobedience. When he hears that he had been failing to follow the Lord, why doesn't he just stop and now turn and begin to follow the Lord again? He doesn't. But so that our minds don't just rest on Solomon this morning, I say to you how foolish it is of us. When we hear God's word calling us to repentance, when God rebukes us, when God convicts us, when we know deep down in our heart that we have been violating the commands of God and going in a way that is contrary to the way that he leads us, why do we get angry? Why do we get defensive? Why do we continue on a road? Why don't we stop and repent at that moment? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And we must understand the difference that it makes if we repent and if we don't repent. Solomon doesn't repent. We're also to keep in mind that even in God's judgment, grace is seen. Even in God's judgment, grace is seen. So in this passage, we have grace to David, verse 12. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. This passage, like so many passages in Scripture, teach how faithfulness can be a blessing to future generations and unfaithfulness a liability to future generations. It says, yet for the sake of David, your father. David had a legacy. A legacy not only of example, but a legacy of grace in which for David's sake, God was going to act graciously towards Solomon and his descendants. What a blessing it is when a people walk with God. A blessing not only for your own life, but a blessing for your children and a blessing for your grandchildren and future generations. It is a joy to your family to be faithful and to be walking with God. Conversely, it's harmful, it's destructive to your family not to be walking with God. The choices are clear and the outcome is quite different. One is not to lose sight of the blessedness nor the hardships that result from one's choices regarding their worship and faithfulness to God. Fifthly, we're to keep in mind as we work through this passage the activity or involvement of God for it is stressed over and over and over again. For well, this is what Solomon had to learn. That is, that his whole future, and not just his future, his family's future, 
And not just his family's future, but the nation's future. It was in the hands of God. It was in the hands of God. That what Solomon needed to be concerned about is what God said, what God thought, what God would do. We're to understand that it is God who is going to take this kingdom away from Solomon and give only one tribe to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Notice God's activity, verse 11. Notice these personal pronouns. The end of verse 11. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. It is I who's going to take it away. It is I who's going to give it to your servant. Verse 12. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your, your son. Verse 13. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. Note, the passive is never used. It does not state, for example, in verse 12, and one tribe shall be given to your son. The activity is directly related to God, so that you can't miss it. I I, I am doing this. Don't look anywhere else. Don't attribute it to any other cause. Don't come up with some human reason. I am doing this. Don't lose sight. And I tell you, brother and sister, it is so important for us not to lose sight that our sovereign God is ruling this nation. This sovereign God is ruling our lives. And we can't look at people. We've got to look at God and realize that God is doing it. This is a work of God. Which brings us to number six. We are to keep in mind that God accomplishes his purposes. God accomplishes purposes. Prior to this, when Solomon first became king and had prayed and had sought the Lord's direction and was faithfully following the Lord, back in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, Solomon's testimony was this. Verse Kings 5, 4, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. As he looked at his kingdom, he said, God has given me rest on every side. Before, when Solomon was walking with the Lord, all was going well. Proverbs 14, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And God made the enemies of Israel to be at peace with Solomon. And he knew peace. 
the early years of that kingdom. But now things were going to change. For now, this God who had given peace to Solomon, the God who enabled that there was never neither adversary nor misfortune, now God raises up adversaries to the kingdom of Solomon. And again, the stress is on God's activity. Notice verse 14. God raises up Hadad in verse 14. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Again, it's the activity of the Lord. It doesn't just simply say that Hadad rose up. It's important that we understand that the Lord raised up Hadad. It was the Lord that was at work. It was the Lord that was bringing this to pass. God raises up resin against Solomon, verse 23. God also raised up as an adversary to him resin, the son of Eliada. So God is raising up these adversaries. Don't just look at the men. Just don't look at the people. Just don't say, well, you know, these things are falling out because of resin, because of... No, it's because God is behind this, because God is raising these people up. And even though things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, Solomon still doesn't repent. That's important to keep in mind. For that is a part of the reason that God is raising up these adversaries. So that Solomon would bow before the Lord, but he doesn't. So next, God raises up Jeroboam against Solomon. God had raised up Hadad. God had raised up Rezin. Now God raises up Jeroboam against Solomon. Verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruiah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the Lord. Now, while the text does not specifically say at this point that God raised up Jeroboam against Solomon, the text makes it clear, abundantly clear, that God is involved in it all. For note the words that the prophet says to Jeroboam, verse 29. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hand of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Ahijah reveals ahead of time what God has said that God is going to do, verse 31. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. Not you, I, through you. But I am tearing the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. And will give you ten tribes. 
God then reveals the reason why the kingdom is going to be taken from Solomon's descendants, for they have forsaken God. Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians. It goes on to describe the other gods. This should be a lesson to Jeroboam and his own kingship. This is how God works. God reveals why he will not take away the entire kingdom from Solomon's descendants. Verse 34, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my covenants and my statutes. God reveals that he will divide up the tribes. Verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of the son's hand, will give it to you ten tribes, yet to his son I will give one tribe. Again, all the personal pronouns, God at work here. And God reveals to Jeroboam the blessing that God is going to give to Jeroboam, verse 37, and I will take you. And you shall reign over all that your soul desires. You shall be given king over Israel. And then he gives Jeroboam a conditional promise. Verse 38, and if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes, my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. How can it be more clear? Jeroboam you become king. I'm the one you've got to deal with. I'm the one you've got to be worried about. Take your eyes off the other nations. Take your eyes off the people. Take your eyes off everything else and place them on me. It's between you and me, Jeroboam. You walk with me, that's good. You don't walk with me, that's bad. That's bad. It's about God. It's about God. God rehearses all of this to Jeroboam as an object lesson on how Jeroboam is to conduct himself. Learn from David. Learn from Solomon. And we need to learn from David. We need to learn from Solomon. We need to learn how sin can be forgiven if we confess, if we repent. We also need to learn that if we continue in our stubbornness, if we continue to reject God's word when it brings conviction, when it tells us of our sinfulness, no matter how well we have started, it is not going to end well. We must be concerned, not only foremost, but ultimately only with walking with God. That's our security. That's our confidence for the future. We put it on our money in God we trust, but how often it's the money we trust in and not God. Or our ingenuity, or our politics, or our next door neighbor. It's God. It's God. God is the one raising these people up. God is the one that's accomplishing his purposes. And it's the same today. Take your eyes 
off of people and place them upon God. Now we look at Solomon's unrepentant response to God. Solomon's unrepentant response to God. Verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. Circle that. Solomon sought, therefore. Therefore, because of what God had revealed concerning Jeroboam. Because God had said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and your descendant and give it to Jeroboam. Therefore, Solomon says, I better kill that guy. He's a threat. Instead of repenting and seeking God's forgiveness, he doubles down and continues now to the point where he rejects the revealed will of God and says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. There's such an irony here, as there is in all of life. It doesn't make sense. On the one hand, Solomon has enough belief and trust in what God says that he understands Solomon, that Jeroboam is a threat. He, he, he believes that what God says is going to happen in the sense that Jeroboam is going to be raising up and he's going to be a problem. I better deal with this. So he believes some of it, but yet he doesn't act upon it in an appropriate way. Instead, he continues in his rebelliousness, he continues in his sinfulness. Solomon tries to prevent what God had said would come to pass. Solomon is knowingly opposing the revealed will of God. Solomon is going against what God says he is going to do. I say, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Well, how foolish. How foolish. And, of course, Solomon is never able to kill Jeroboam. Why? Because God has given the kingdom into Jeroboam's hand. It's not just about Solomon and Jeroboam fighting each other. It's about Solomon fighting God. And because God has chosen Jeroboam, Jeroboam is safe. For it's not just the consequences of men, it's the activity of a sovereign God. How far Solomon has fallen. How far Solomon has really been removed from his relationship with God. Back in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, in that wonderful prayer that Solomon offers for wisdom, he says this, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Give me an ability to govern your people. Give me the ability to discern right from wrong, good from evil. 
Now when God reveals what is good and what is evil, Solomon chooses the evil and not the good. And of course, it's going to fail to rule over God's people. In essence, Solomon wastes this wonderful opportunity that God has given him for repentance. God confronts Solomon, and Solomon ignores it. Don't waste the convicting work of the Spirit of God in your own life. When God confronts you about your sin, don't get angry, don't get defensive, and don't double down and just say you're going to continue on, but repent. But repent. Understand how gracious and loving God is to tell us of the consequences of our failure to live for him and the blessings of living for him. So now we have this summary statement in verses 41 to 43. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the name that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel is 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Conclusion. First, we're to see God at work in the past and learn of God's working in the present and the future. You get nothing else from this passage. Understand a sovereign God at work in human affairs. Keep that in mind because you aren't going to hear it on the news. You're not going to read it in the newspaper. You have to bring to this world's understanding that God is in control of all that is taking place. And what we need to do is turn to God. If my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, then I will heal their land. The call of Scripture is to trust in God. That's the church's duty. That's the church's trumpet. That's what we have to say to a sin-filled, fallen world. The answer to the needs of this nation and this world is Jesus Christ. When he returns, there will be absolute peace. There will be absolute joy. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more war. What this world needs is Christ. And our message can never be anything but. And our trust and our confidence can never be anything but. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. We're to see the importance of yielding to and even welcoming his sovereign rule. It is glorious that our God reigns. It is not to be opposed, it's to be welcomed. For what better ruler could there be? He is just, he is holy, he's righteous, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-good. 
Why would we not want him first to rule over our lives? And then to rule over our church and to rule over our nation and rule over the world. Why wouldn't we want that? How foolish it is to reject the authority of God. We're to see how grievous it is to continue in an unrepentant state when we are so thoroughly warned of the outcomes of a failure to love and worship God. Rather, we're to see how God forgives, welcomes the repentant sinner. How we can forestall judgment and experience the blessing of God, even as David, who came to be viewed as one who had kept and fulfilled all the commands of God despite his sin because of his confession and the forgiveness of God. May we see that walking with God is a matter of the heart and not just of the mind. Solomon's failure was not that he didn't have the word of God. Solomon's failure was not that he didn't understand the word of God. Solomon's failure was not that he didn't know better. Solomon's failure was that his heart had moved away. He had other longings. He had other desires. He replaced his love for God with his love for these foreign women and desired to please them rather than to please God and, and to build these shrines and these places of worship that eventually he got caught up into himself. We need to be praying that God would keep our hearts. For so often it is, we go contrary to what we know is better. We sin not because we don't know better. We sin not because we don't know it's wrong. You know, people will say to me, can't you talk to somebody? And it's like, if you just point it out to them, then it'll be fine. No, it's, it's not that we don't know better. It's that we don't care. It's because we don't love God enough to say no to the sin and say yes to him. So we need to, to fan, to stir up, to take these embers that are dying out in our love for God and cause them to burst into flame. And we do that through our love of and understanding of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is so important that we stay in the Word of God, that we meditate in the Word of God, that we reflect in the Word of God. For Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. That's what separates us. For it's only in the Word of God. It's not in the news. It's only in the Word of God that you are going to be pointed to God as the ruler and the authority of this life. Everything is going to be used of the evil one to distract us and look to men and look to politics and look to governments when we're to look to God. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. He is our source. 
He is our security. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we will trust the Lord our God. Our Father, help us in every aspect of our life to trust you. May we see Jesus as the answer to every need. Every need. Lord, whether it be emotional, whether it be physical, whether it be spiritual, Lord, we are a helpless people. And you bring so many things into our lives to remind us of our dependence upon you. Oh, Lord, may we learn the lesson and may we learn it quickly. Cause us to be a people of prayer. Cause us to be a people that, first of all, seek you to guard and keep our hearts, knowing that we can't guard and keep them of our own. Oh, Lord, preserve us, our love for you. May it not wane. May it grow. May the cause of Christ just overwhelm us and your goodness to us. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would be the author and supplier of our needs. We know the scriptures. We know that you teach us not to be anxious about tomorrow, that you will provide, that you will keep. Lord, keep that in our poor thing. Keep that in our minds. Help us, oh God, to be foolish in the world's sight who never thinks about God. May we always think about God. And may we never, ever lose sight that our sovereign God reigns. And Lord, you are in control. So may we seek you and your providential care, your guidance. May we seek your intervention. May we seek your blessing, your preservation, your protection, the fulfillment of all that you have said for our well-being, for our protection, for our supplies, our daily bread. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.